The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about restorative programs that includes all types of conflict resolution, and we're going to be focusing basically on young people. So I'm thrilled to introduce my audience to Luke Yoder, who's the executive director at the Center for Restorative Programs, which is a community-based organization serving at-risk youth in the San Luis Valley in beautiful Colorado. And prior to that, Luke served as the director of the Center for Nonprofit Empowerment at the Partnership for Families and Children. Luke holds a master's degree in business administration and conflict resolution from the University of Denver, and we love Denver. And he's been, he's been working and studying in the area of conflict resolution and restorative justice for the past 10 years. Luke brings experience in many areas of transforming conflict, and that includes such things as working with youth and their families in various areas such as restorative justice, family mediation, bullying prevention, and intervention, and positive youth development. So you can find out more about him at restorativeprograms.org. And also you'll see his his bio and his picture. And we link to his website at conflicthealing.com. So thank you so much, Luke, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, this is really terrific that you're working with kids because I see so much bullying and I hear so much from parents about that. And of course, we all read about it in the newspaper that there is such a disconnect in terms of communication with kids and kids and their parents and everybody's communicating by text. Even my own kids who are older, um, they're, they want to communicate by text instead of really communicating by talking. So it looks like we really do need to do some more dialoguing, doesn't it? It sure does. And that's, that's one of the reasons why the work that we're doing really feels so valuable and so important is because of what you're talking about. The disconnect that we often have in our ability to communicate, particularly among family units, and then also when students are in school or when students are out in the community. Um, it really has become a, a challenging thing, and I think the more that we can be providing tools and resources to really be able to handle that in a more effective and healthy manner, the better off we are and the better off we'll be as, as, those, as our youth grow up. Oh, absolutely. So tell me, Luke, what drew you to the field of conflict transformation? Well, I think the biggest thing for me is really just, again, seeing the, the impact that effective communication can have. 
and really how rare that is that people have those skills and the opportunity to really communicate in effective ways. And I think for me, the, especially the first thing was uh, just really, again, seeing the need, especially for young people, to be developing those skills early in life because later on in life, you know, we often get in situations in work or in our personal lives where if we've learned skills as a young person to be able to, to handle that communication or that conflict in a meaningful way, then we're able to better resolve those things as adults. And when we don't have those skills, then we see people getting into all sorts of, of trouble, both personally um, as well as within their, their working situation as well as out in the community. And so it really, again, I think provides a really strong set of skills to, to people at an age where they can be the most impactful and can really go on to, to impact their lives down the road. So I think that's really the excitement of being able to work with youth and to be able to provide um, skills to youth that really are valuable in terms of helping them long-term and really have more productive and, and healthy lives. Well, I think it is so terrific. I, I remember, you know, when I was a, a kid, we didn't have conflict resolution classes and there wasn't anything like peer mediation. And of course, I got into it as, you know, as, as a teacher, I used to teach uh, high school and I could see the kind of conflict stuff that was going on. And then I became a lawyer. And of course, then I really saw the conflict and, and then a mediator. And then I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is so crazy. We have to find a different way to do this. But it is so important. It's a life skill. And to teach these kids when they're little to, to learn to problem solve instead of fight is just, uh, you know, it's, it's really doing, I think, spiritual work in the world. So let's talk a little bit about the conflict transformation programs that you are currently working on. Yeah, and, and since I've really gotten into this field, again, really have focused on youth. And as far as what I'm currently working on, I spent a lot of time in school studying uh, bullying in particular, as well as restorative justice, and the intersection of those two things in particular. And that's what I've been doing a lot of work at here as well at the Center for Restorative Programs. And to, to just briefly touch on those two topics, bullying is one that you mentioned earlier, Mari, as being something that is, is very, very prevalent, and we've seen the significant impact that it can have on the lives of young people, both people who are experiencing bullying as a target and, as well as people who are perpetrating bullying behavior. Um, it really does have some really significant detrimental effects um, that we've seen play out in the news media over and over again over the last decade. And so that's an area where I think there, there's a tremendous amount of work that is being done but also needs to continue to, to happen. Um, restorative justice also has been a really effective way of addressing bullying that's been playing out more and more um, through both research as well as through implementation in the classroom and in after-school settings and things of that nature. And so that really is an area where I've had a lot of personal interest, but we've also seen in terms of, of the implementation of bullying prevention programs that utilize a restorative justice approach, um, some really significant impact in the schools that we're working with here in the San Luis Valley. And so that's probably the most exciting area um, of conflict transformation that I've been involved in recently. And, and again, think that there's really significant um, opportunity for, for both ongoing research as well as ongoing implementation of, of restorative justice to deal with, with bullying in particular, but also all sorts of behavioral issues in schools. Oh, no, it's fantastic. Let's, let's take each one of those at a time. So tell us, how do you work with bullying? You know, I think it's so hard because a lot of the bullying can even be somewhat anonymous when you're online, can't it? So it's, it's, it's gotten more insidious. I mean, I remember bullying, kids bullying each other in high school and when I taught high school, but it was, it was it kind of 
you were you were sure who was doing this to you. But what what do you do now with all of this bullying online? Which is a great question, and obviously that's an area of of bullying and of research and of really again imp- implementation of, of bullying prevention efforts that's ongoing in terms of its development. It really there's every day there's new stuff that's coming out around that in terms of state legislation, in terms of school policy, and in terms of actually you know practical tools that we have at our disposal to try to deal with with what we call cyber bullying. Um, but just quickly to back up too, as far as what we're talking about when we talk about bullying, to make sure that your audience knows what we're talking about. We're talking about behavior where there's a power imbalance, where there's repetition, or where there's an intent to harm. And those are really the three differentiating factors when we're talking about bullying versus normal conflict. And as far as, as kind of the particularly insidious nature of bullying now, as you point out, Mari, um, you're right. It's, I think when we stereotypically think about bullying in the past, we think about a larger kid you know, slamming a, a smaller kid into the locker or somebody stealing somebody's lunch money, those kinds of things where it's a very overt thing, you know who's doing it, it's happening, you know, again, in a very overt way. Um, but what we work with and what we deal with primarily is not that physical kind of bullying most, most often. It's most often relational bullying where people are intentionally excluded or left out of social groups repeatedly, again, with an intent to harm. Um, it's also things like cyberbullying, like you mentioned, where people use Facebook or people use email uh, less frequently email with our young people these days, it turns out. But Facebook and texting and, and all of those different kinds of social medium through which they're able to do things either anonymously or without any sort of real face-to-face consequence. And that really is a dangerous thing because it's really easy to hit that send button, but it's much more difficult to do that in person most often. And so there's a lot higher prevalence of it, and it really can, again, be impactful in ways that are different than when somebody's face-to-face with you. So as far as dealing with that, what we're finding is, again, just supervision from both parents as well as school, uh, school personnel, really trying to make sure that they're supervising and, and controlling as much as possible the use of media in the school from computers to cell phones, um, things of that nature. But then also that there's a really effective uh, reporting mechanism so that when things do happen outside of school, which is where most of the, the cyberbullying occurs, that there's a really effective mechanism for both acknowledging that it's happening as well as recording and documenting it so that the proper steps can be taken to address the behavior that's occurring. Um, But there's, again, more and more stuff that's happening at the state level and at individual school level related to policy and legislation about trying to address this particularly nuanced piece of bullying. And, you know, it seems to me that we have to kind of get to the heart of, of bullying I have to tell you, when, when I, I'm on some listservs with attorneys and with other different kinds of groups that I'm on, and I notice that even there's even some bullying in there in, the, in those listservs. These are adults, these are professionals, and people start to bully each other in a way like, you know, not not to to like threaten them, but really bullying them like they one knows better than the other and to embarrass in these groups. And so I think there's just this like inherent um, misunderstanding of how to communicate with people. So are there in the schools, are they actually doing classes in their social studies classes about how to communicate effectively, how to deal with your own inner conflicts and, and deal with conflicts with others? Is that happening? I mean, I haven't seen that much of that going on. Which is a, a great question, a great observation. And the more that we are able to equip students with social emotional skills to be able to both 
A, develop empathy and a capability for relating to other students in a way that will prohibit them from wanting to engage in bullying behavior, but then also if you are targeted by bullying, to know how to respond to that effectively. Um, the more that we can be equipping students with those skills, the better off they are in life, A, but then more importantly, for the, from the school's perspective, the more able they are to learn effectively in the school environment as well. So, what, yes. so I was going to ask you, so um, what are some tricks, what are some tricks of the trade if you, um, if you are a child, let's say you're a seventh or eighth grader and you're being bullied, what, what should you do? What are some tri- you know, tips that you should do? Sure, and, and as far as a student who's being targeted by bullying, it's really important that you have support, first of all, whether that's from other students or whether that's from trusted adults. And so my first thought for anyone in that situation is make sure you've got people that know about what's going on that you trust can be able to, to support you in the process, whether that's, again, a trusted adult at the school, whether that's your parents, whether that's another trusted adult in the community, whether that's your, your fellow students who are able to, again, empathize with what you're going through and to be able to step in and, and be a support for you. So that support is the first thing that I would say. Um, the other thing is really what in talking to those, those trusted people, try to develop some strategies and ideas for how you can respond when things happen in a way that will allow you to diffuse the situation and get out of it rather than escalating it. And I think often we hear parents, and this is something that I hear fairly regularly, uh, I heard this just last week, um, actually having, you know, when their student is being targeted by another student, well, if they're coming at you again, what you should do is really stand up for yourself and, you know, bop them one in the nose, um, <laughs> things like that. And, and really, that really is ultimately not an effective way to deal with the strategy. And I think all of us inherently know that violence is not a, a good idea. But when we're kind of backed into that corner or feel like we're backed into that corner a lot of times, that's what comes to mind. And so I'd really encourage people to be a lot more creative than that. Um, if you use violence, what you're doing is, A, probably going to get you into trouble, but B, likely only going to escalate the conflict that you're experiencing and the, the targeting that you're experiencing. Um, and so trying to find creative ways to get out of those situations, to have people who can support you if you find yourself in that situation again is probably the, the number one thing that I would recommend to students if they were experiencing that. So do you think when the bullying goes on outside of the school, do are the schools, the principals and the teachers, are they, are you finding at least in your area that they're willing to get involved? Like if I had a child that was being bullied and my kids are grown up now, but I remember when they were bullied, um, is it something now that you think that it's a good idea to call the principal or to call the teacher and say, look, my, my kid is being bullied. What are you going to do to help me? I mean, is that something that's reasonable to ask when it happens outside the school? Absolutely. And I think if for no other reason than it lets the school know to keep an eye out for it on school grounds, and that's where they obviously have the most control over the situation and if the school is able to acknowledge that student A is targeting student B outside of the school, then, again, they can keep an eye out for that behavior happening in the school setting um, in a way that will make sure that, that the student who's being targeted feels safe. And that really is the number one priority of the or should be the number one priority of the school and obviously the number one priority of the parent. So absolutely it's appropriate to, to contact the school. It may be that they do or, or don't do something with that specific information, but at the very least they'll be able to keep an eye out for it um, on school grounds. So in terms of what your organization does, your, your Center for Restorative Programs, and this is right in a small community and you're dealing with 
serving at-risk kids there. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you actually go into the schools and, and teach peer mediation? Or what do you do with regard to to this kind of cyberbullying issue? Yeah, and let me just kind of run through through our key areas of programming, and I think I'll, I'll touch on exactly what you were just asking, Mari. We've, we first started as what was what's called a victim offender reconciliation program, and there are a number of those throughout the country. And what we do in that program is really try to facilitate victim offender dialogue with youth who have committed a crime in the community. They've been uh, caught doing that crime. They've been ticketed. And either as a diversionary process or as a part of the criminal justice system process, we, we meet with youthful offenders, um, have them hopefully... Uh, own up to their actions, take accountability for their actions, and be willing to sit down face-to-face with the person that they committed a crime against. And then we go through a dialogue process whereby everybody is able to express what their concerns are, what their, the impact on that behavior was um, to the victim, and then really address any specific harms that can be repaired by, by the offender. Um, so that, that was how we originally started, and we started seeing, you know, we're, we're finding a lot more behaviors were being uh, criminalized that happened in the school setting, that happened out in the community because there weren't other forums through which to address those behaviors. So they were ending up in court. And I think as most people probably are are kind of intuitively aware, once you're in the court system, it's much more likely that you remain there. And so we really wanted to try to find ways to keep kids, particularly at the lower level of kind of petty delinquent behavior that's going on in the community, to try to address those behaviors earlier on. So that's how we really started to work in the schools more and more. And so our second area of programming that kind of grew naturally from our first is is school-based restorative discipline. And so we work a lot in schools throughout the San Luis Valley. We work with 14 different school districts in a variety of different capacities. But what we do in those school districts is exactly what you're suggesting. So we train peer mediation teams. We support those peer mediation teams in an ongoing way throughout the year. We provide bullying prevention training for staff and for parents as well as for general community folks so that they're able to identify and, and intervene when they see bullying happen on a day-to-day basis. We work specifically with more egregious instances of bullying um, that they might call us to come in and help them to, to put together a plan for how students will feel safe and how students who are perpetrating bullying behavior will be held accountable in a meaningful way. Um, we work with a variety of other um, disciplinary-type issues that come up in the school setting, um, trying to make sure, again, that students are not ostracized and not sent out of the school community, but that they're able to, after some sort of disciplinary issue, be reintegrated back into the school community in a meaningful way by owning their actions, but still, again, being a part of the community. So they're not just getting suspended arbitrarily and out of school for six days and then come back to no, uh, no new situation. You know, it always seems so stupid to me that they would ever even suspend kids. Even when I taught high school, I thought it was ridiculous to suspend kids. And I sat on a school board as well. I was an elected school board member. And it always seems so dumb to me because that's exactly what they want. They want to be out of school. And then, of course, then it just makes them angrier. It just seems to me that if you were going to do something, you know, have them engage in helping other people, you know, (laughs) do something that you're trying to teach maybe doing some community service after school, going into elder care or working in a community like helping with the homeless, something where they're going to learn some empathy and sympathy rather than just sitting around watching TV at home. 
I just, you know, I still don't understand it. And I've been an educator myself for all these years. It just seems to me that there should be the kind of discipline that that really gets them to change their attitudes. You know, I, is, is that done with restorative uh, discipline? Yeah, and that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about, so there, there's a two student or a student who gets into a, some sort of insubordination situation with their teacher. Teacher just can't handle them in the classroom. Um, they, they spout off to the teacher, and then they end up going to the disciplinarian. Disciplinarian says, all right, you're out of here for three days. Um, they go home, they play PlayStation or Xbox, do whatever they're going to do at home, and then they come back into school and nothing has changed. And with the restorative approach, what we try to do is to say, okay, rather than this student being suspended for three days, what are our other options? Let's have the student sit down with the teacher, perhaps with the disciplinarian as well. And there may, there certainly may be some sort of sanction that the school needs to put in place because of their discipline code or whatever. But let's say that the student then has three days of in-school suspension. What are they going to do meaningfully during those three days to address the harm that happened in the classroom, the disruption that occurred in the classroom, the embarrassment that the teacher felt, things of that nature? What are they going to do moving forward when the student does get frustrated with the teacher to ensure that the same type of outburst doesn't occur again? Perhaps the student was frustrated because they aren't understanding what's happening in the class, and that's what's causing them to act out behaviorally. Well, then maybe we can look at getting them some additional homework assistance or some additional tutoring. So it really lets us look at the situation a little bit more holistically than just saying, okay, here was the behavior, here's the punishment, and we're going to expect that when you come back, things will look different. And that's really not a, a fair thing in terms of setting the student up for success, and it certainly doesn't set the school up for success either. So if we can be addressing those, the causes of that, the behavior as well as meaningfully addressing the impact that happened, again, like you're suggesting, by having some sort of um, service to the school, having some sort of um, direct education uh, that the student provides to other students about how you can avoid getting into the situation. You know, there's all sorts of different possibilities with restorative discipline that really, again, I think will lead to the type of, of impact that you're talking about. So I, I read on your website that you have peace corners. I'm not really familiar with, with what you mean by peace corners. And, and there's a whole variety of different restorative practices that schools can adopt. And peace corners is an example of one, particularly for elementary age students, where um, when, when students come into school each day, ideally the, the teacher is having a regular kind of circle check-in to see how everybody's doing. You know, are there any things that happened overnight that the students are excited about or that the students are frustrated about. So there's just kind of that process of regularly checking in and doing some problem solving together. And so a Peace Corner might be a particular place in the, in the classroom where if two students are having a disagreement or if the student is upset with the teacher or the teacher is upset with the student, that they might pull aside and kind of practice some of that same uh, problem solving and that same sharing of, of how people are experiencing things so that they can learn from each other so that they can create a, a better environment and a better situation. And again, just by doing that kind of regular check-in every day, there's been a normalization of that type of approach um, to conflict and to, to communication barriers and communication issues. And so by regularly having that, that happen, it makes when there is a more of a serious situation that occurs in the classroom that they can then go to the Peace Corner, have a quick conversation, and hopefully resolve the issue right there. So I see the Peace Corner is kind of like a safe place. Right. Yeah, and 
you know, if it were me, I, I would have my bells, I'd right. have my little, little pillows to sit on, make it like a little meditative area or something mm-hmm. like that. What about, you know, I know what facilitative dialogue is, but I think a lot of people aren't really familiar with that. Could you explain what, what you mean by facilitative dialogue or facilitated dialogue? Yeah, and, and facilitated dialogue is really a model that we use throughout the sort of discipline work that we do in schools as well as the victim-offender dialogue that we do uh, with, with more court-based cases. And that essentially is just a model where there are two people who are having a difficult time communicating or two people who are in conflict, and by bringing in a more neutral kind of objective third party to help facilitate a conversation and allow both, really the purpose is to allow both people to have a space to talk um, to have a space where they can listen, a space where they can understand more deeply, and then ultimately a space where they can do some problem-solving together. And that's really what the facilitation is for, is to, to help those things to happen, to help listening and, and talking more effectively, as well as deeper understanding, and then hopefully ultimately problem-solving. And, and by having that third party there to facilitate the conversation, often you'll see a lot more effective listening, talking, understanding, and, and problem-solving. So how is that different from mediation? It, it, I think, can be used in some ways overlapping with mediation. I think mediation is a facilitated dialogue, but I think also, again, with the going back to a classroom example in an elementary school classroom where we're talking about just having that regular check-in every day, the teacher then can be that facilitator of dialogue just so that everyone's able to express their thing that they're excited about for the day or their thing that they're frustrated about from the, the previous day. It really is an opportunity for this kind of broader conversation among a larger group. I see. So if it's, it, mediation usually has an intent to resolve some issue or issues, whereas facilitated dialogue is really just to allow everyone to be heard without the necessary intent of resolving something. That's how, that's how I would see it, yeah. And, and I would see also mediation as, as being facilitated dialogue, but not all facilitated dialogue is mediation, right. in, in my mind, if that makes sense. Right, right, yeah. So you have to facilitate dialogue as a mediator, mm-hmm. but you have a goal there. Right. And whereas the facilitated dialogue, we're just allowing people to err and and be heard is, is a little bit different because you don't have that next step of resolving the issues. right. Well, we only have a little bit more time. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about parent-teen mediation because I think there's so much disconnect between parents and teens that um, that would be really helpful. Absolutely. And, and as I was kind of going through our programming, we started as a VORP program, Victim Offender Reconciliation Program, moved into the schools. And then in the, when we, as we're doing all this work, realized, hey, a lot of this stuff is starting at home. There's a student who's had a really difficult go of it with their, with their parents recently, and that's bleeding over into the school setting, or that's bleeding over into the community in terms of delinquent behavior. And so if we can be addressing those behaviors even earlier on in the family, then we can hopefully prevent, again, some of the further penetration into the criminal justice system, the juvenile justice system. So that really is what prompted our, our working with parent-teen conflict. And what we do with that is, is we have trained facilitators who sit down with parents and with teens to, again, try to go through a facilitated dialogue process where they identify what their uh, concerns are. They're able to, to, everyone's able to put things out on the table in a way that allows for deeper understanding. We then will we'll work together to help to identify um, some potential ways to move forward, and then the family really comes up with a plan for how they'd like to do that in a more healthy way. 
And it is really an opportunity for people to sit down in a way that they haven't been able to before because their typical communication patterns have broken, have been really unhealthy and the communication is broken down. And so this really is a way for them to communicate with some uh, more healthy parameters in place and with that third party there to, to guide the conversation so that they can really come up with some effective solutions for how they can move forward together. I love it. Well, we are just out of time, so I'm going to give your website restorativeprograms.org. And I'm so glad that we got to meet in uh, New Orleans. And Luke, you're just doing a terrific job, and we will keep in touch. Thank you so much for the great work that you're doing. Thank you, Mari. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. and visit our website at conflicthealing.com where you can download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and look at who's coming up on our show. And write us emails about what's important to you about peace in this universe. All right. Thank you. Bye. expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.